Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Mike Green, I'm here for Real Vision in Marin County. I get to reach out to my friend Danny Moses. Danny is well known for the big short, but is an all-around fantastic guy, and I can't wait to hear what he's thinking about these days. Danny, welcome to Real Vision. Thanks, man. I love looking at this earthquake background. It really is settling for me. So well, the real big short is California falling into the ocean, right? That's true. The, uh, this is, as, as, as we discussed earlier, this is the Loma Prieta, the World Series earthquake happening in the background. It uh, seems appropriate for a volatility-focused guy. So, Danny, you and I interacted very briefly uh, last week. We were both, or two weeks ago, I guess, we were both on a um, IEX podcast series. And, you know, you have started to step out into the public eye in a way that I haven't really seen before Tell me a little bit about what's going on in, in, in your world. This stepping into the public eye is not the first time for you. You originally, before you came to Wall Street and uh, joined Front Point for the story that we all know through the big short, you actually wanted to be in media. Is that correct? Yeah, my first passion was sports broadcasting. And so when I was at Emory during my senior year down in Atlanta, I interned at CNN Sports for Fred Hickman and Nick Charles and found myself as, you know, filming hockey games on the West Coast that were ending at one in the morning, editing them, doing some voiceovers for that. And my, that was really my first passion. But having been at Emory, I met all these people from the Northeast. And when college ended, I had a choice to go start covering maybe high school football games somewhere in the Midwest or work my way back up towards Wall Street. And I chose the Wall Street route. So maybe this is a end around way of, you know, fulfilling that long living dream. Although, Really, the whole idea is it's not an ego thing about being on the camera or anything like that. It's I enjoy telling stories, trying to help people understand things they might not be able to understand just from reading the fine print. So it's a real passion of mine to help. And that really comes from my father, who was a finance professor and taught students investments and case analysis. And so I think mixing that all together, I kind of find my way you know, in, into the seat talking to you today. So, well, and so you, along with Guy Adami of CNBC and one other individual whose name is, is Dan Steve, Nathan. Yep. Dan, Dan Nathan, Nathan, thank you. Um, have begun your own podcast series on the tape, which I've had the opportunity to listen to. And it's and entertaining as all hell. And as you point out, educational, right? So it's, it, it it's one of these interesting things, you know, you and I talked about this briefly. There's this legacy finance media that's tied to things like CNBC and in all candor, you know, the hosts were known and comfortable and you and I have seen them come and go, but there's an entire alternate universe that's kind of opening up. And so your participation on the podcast side with on the tape is to me, it feels like part of a transition that's underway. Does that, does that feel right to you? Yeah. I think what we're trying to do is on the tape obviously is entertain, but at the same time educate. And I think it's a cross of those. And I think you're right. I think the traditional CNBC getting eyeballs on is entertaining. And 
first of all, you and I both know, Mike, that no one likes to hear negative stories. No right. one likes to hear about things going down. So CNBC, for better or for worse, is kind of somewhat Wall Street promotional. Um, and so rarely do you see negative stories, although they come and go. But I would say that what we're trying to do is on the tape is maybe teach the consumer slash you know, investor to try to ask the right questions, not to take anything at face value. And I think the three of us kind of bring a different skill set um, all. And so we try to do is do 15 or 20 minutes each week of just kind of what's in the news, how we interpret it, what people should be looking for. And then also beyond that, have a guest on who we think can enlighten people in something really, really interesting. So that's actually a really, it, one of the things that people are used to hearing me say on Twitter is why are you reading this now, right? And this idea of how to interpret information that's coming at you. When you're thinking about educating and communicating, how, how do you think of identifying the stories that are important or um, potentially even more important, how to interpret the stories that make it to the front of the pay, the front of the you know what used to be the paper, but today is obviously not right. The front, the the, the front story right. streaming across your Twitter feed or whatever. How do you think about figuring that question out? Well, I like to see who's writing the story. Where did the research emanate from? Uh, was it the company itself? Let's just talk about something maybe stock specific. Like where did that story come from? But what's really interesting to me, let me just take a step back, is just, you know, peeling back the onion, looking below the surface of things. I remember specifically when long-term capital blew up um, in the late 90s, Monica Lewinsky and the Clinton scandal was going on at the exact same time. But the Monica Lewinsky-Clinton scandal, what was not what was roiling the markets, although that was the interpretation at the time. It was the underbelly. It was long-term capital. that we Now we've seen a lot of scandals politically that have come and go and really has no impact on the market longer term. But that was kind of the first time, one of the first things I looked at, and I realized, guys, this is not the Monica Lewinsky Clinton scan. Anyway, so when you start to look at that and you start to kind of dig down deep into what is the plumbing of the financial system, or in this case, or in any case, plumbing of a company, never do I take, never do I believe anything that a CEO says. They may be 99% telling the truth, but I'm saying with me, I always take it with a little bit of grain of salt and then dig a little deeper. What is the reason that this article is coming out? Or why is this being interpreted? I would look and see the reaction of people's interpretation. And I know I've said this many times, and you know, I always say the worst thing you can do when you go to a horse track is to look at the odds first before you look at the program first, because your brain will move you towards the favorite always beside of looking for a long shot. And that's kind of behavioral finance 101, how I approach things. So long-winded answer, but there is no perfect scientific approach. I think it's just understanding the behavior and how people react. You know, why do stocks go down sometimes on what is perceived as positive news. Well, it's probably built into the stock it was expected. Or conversely, why do stocks go down on what should have been already deemed to be negative news? And I think it's taking advantage of those extremes and understanding the market behavior is where you can really make a lot of money. Well, and this is one of the challenges that I think that we've experienced. It's one of the reasons why I, I would suggest some of my stuff on passive or other things have begun to resonate with people because this idea of the expectations channel, right? How does a stock react to the information? Um, I think is increasingly confusing to many, including professionals, right? Which is, you, you know, um, and policymakers, right? We're, we're taught to believe that if a stock fails to respond to negative news, that that in turn means that it's actually positive news, that it was fully priced in. But oddly, you and I are both experiencing a world in which an increasing fraction of the participation is coming from either index funds or from um, uh, the need to hedge underlying positions that have been taken in an option framework or a short squeeze that is being established. 
when you look at this market today, does it feel similar to prior periods where the expectations channel is functioning? Or do you think that that is a legitimate critique that is that is levered, where it's just it's disassociated from some of the underlying fundamentals? I think this particular market has a lot of momentum drivers built into it. And the problem with momentum is when it ends, where does the stock go? And I think what we've seen now on many cases, and certainly we're in a bull market, so to speak, by defining terms, but it does not feel that way when you see all the underlying volatility in individual stocks. So when a stock loses its momentum and it has no reason to have been where it was, is there a fundal, fundamental reason to buy that stock? And I always rest on the fact that I'm going to miss a lot of growth names on the upside because I don't believe in the fundamentals because when that ends, where are you going to buy the stock? And so I think we've seen a lot of that in this market. And that really reminds me of 99, 2000 and the kind of the meme stocks that were back then. And there's really no difference in terms of Yahoo chat rooms and Wall Street bets and Reddit, right? It's really very similar. Adding a dot com back then or saying you're in crypto now. And you see a lot of the behavior. And I, and I talked about this before, this particular market, you know, the average age of the Robin Hood traders, 31 years old, which means they were 17 during the financial crisis, which means they've only known the Fed having your back. And so this is a liquidity driven market period. And while every stock is based upon buyers and sellers of individual securities, the overriding macro here is still so strong from liquidity that money's just looking for a home and it will find its way into whatever is the flavor of the day. And that's a very dangerous, unsustainable model of a long term. So I think what we're seeing now is People find comfort in ETFs because they feel like, all right, I got 72 names. If one or two goes wrong, that's fine. But at the same time, I think the old school, reading the 10Ks and Qs, doing bottom-up analysis to take advantage of near-term displacement in stocks or near-term volatility that may be misinterpreted over the long haul is how you really make your money over time. So there is no one answer to this. This market has, has parts of every part of my career in it, you know. 91, 92, 98, 99, 2000, 2006, 2007, 2012, it has everything. So it's it's really interesting. I actually think right now, even with the market as high as it is, it is the most potential alpha I have seen, I think both on the long and particularly on, on, on the short side here. So it's, it's interesting you mentioned that it blends aspects of all of these. I was talking about this with somebody the other day. I mean, one of the things that is very clear to me is that this has now persisted to the point that you know, um, the refrain that we hear on on Twitter or elsewhere is OK, Boomer, right? Anyone who is, you know, over the age, it's, it's, it's a variant of the, uh, you know, the old hippie quote, don't trust anyone over the age of 35, right? Any, anyone over the age of give or take 40 or 45 that has experienced that cycle. You mentioned the Robin Hood trader at 31. And that's, by the way, just an astonishing statistic when you think about the dynamics of average, right? Because there are no to my knowledge, at least one-year-olds, to go back to the E-Trade example from 1999, right, where the baby was 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 trading, right? There are no one-year-olds, and so to get a an average age of 31, when you consider a single 65-year-old throws that off so dramatically, yeah. right? Two 21-year-olds and a and a single 65 brings you to a 33 average, effectively, right? Like it's hard to have a 31-year-old average for anything in finance. Um, when you when you think about those types of dynamics that kind of discard for anyone who has experienced anything else you know the thoughts of those in the big short who have experienced this and and been the contrarian saying hey wait a second home prices could go down if the whole thing is built on fraud and and you know lack of transparency in the in uh, the debt components of the market the credit extension components 
I'm seeing that all over the place, right? And that, that to me strikes me as kind of the single biggest dynamic that is so indicative of bubble-like behavior. Now, with that said, you point to the single stock dynamics and you know we just recently saw Viacom, for example, rise 10X from uh, March, 2020 to peaking over, you know, from 10 bucks basically to a hundred bucks. And then Bill Huang at Archigos um, blow up on it retreating back to 50 bucks, right? This is one of these crazy sort of scenarios that you look and you're like, who is applying leverage to this? Why are they doing this? What, what do you think is some of the story that's behind that? Well, that particular story, I mean, to take a step back in general, no one ever asks questions when a stock's going up. It's always when a stock's going down, right? So you don't get those questions of, oh, I know why Viacom can go from 40 to 80. Oh, they're going to create an entire you know, creative media department. They're going to buy so much content. They're going to change the way they distribute all this stuff. When it's going down, it's like, what's happening? What's going on? This liquidation event. So leverage obviously causes that. But this goes back to money's free right now. It has been. Risk taking is at an all-time high. Um, that's measured in any way you want to look at it, whether it's a bull bear index, whether it's leverage, whether it's margin debt, whatever you want to look at, it's at an all-time high. And that's always going to come with problems uh, over time. And you're seeing pockets of blowups, whether it's green sill, archegos, you know, whatever it might be. Um, so you're going to see a lot more of these things, I truly believe, keep happening because this is what the Fed wanted. The global central banks created this chase, and that's a real endemic problem. And this is going to take years to wipe out. We've been effectively for the last now, you know, 12, 13 years, effectively at zero rates. I mean, it's been either a QE market, you try to you try to taper and go off QE, you try to raise rates a little bit, the market we know cannot withstand higher rates. And so they've achieved their objective if their objective is to get everybody out on the risk curve and, and out there lending and out there buying and doing those things. And the housing market itself, although this housing market to me has a lot of other things um, that are going on, a, a tax arbitrage in various states, I think COVID moving out of some cities, yes, people will come back, but I do think there is a secular shift here, not just cyclical. The housing market back then was people that were truly over levered on their personal balance sheets, people that were owned, that had no right to access to these mortgages that, that they were getting that thankfully are gone. Although there's a lot of creative products that are still out there in the mortgage market that let you do this. So if you just take the, if you extrapolate kind of Archegos situation and you say, how can a firm go to five different banks on swap and get this type of leverage five times without any other banks knowing? I mean, that's a, that's a real problem. I think we're starting to see very, very loose underwriting in the consumer area as well, because banks are, as we know, as they're about to report their first quarter, are going to be basically freeing up this, the, the cash they were hoarding in anticipation of bad credit. So consumer credit is going to look the greatest it ever has in the history, certainly relative to what banks reserve in anticipation of that. So we're still in this euphoric phase where no one's going to worry about it yet. And so whether there's going to be another product, a CDO-esque product that blows up over time or something related to mortgage, I'm sure we'll get there eventually. But there's just this is just the wild, wild west. And throw Bitcoin in there as another as another asset that, you know, is just going up exponentially or digital that's now we're we're through two trillion now in digital currencies. It's really astonishing how quickly that has happened too. That's a, that's a whole nother episode of Real Vision. I'm sure you can do with somebody else who knows currencies, <laughs> digital currencies better than me. But anyway, I depends, on, I depends on who you ask. It's not clear that I know anything about them. So um, the 
when, when you think about that type of dynamic and this kind of craziness and uncertainty, like to me, you, I think you actually had a good quote on this or somebody had a good quote on this the other day, which is the 2006 housing bubble felt like it was a positive euphoria based dynamic, right? Which was, hey, we can all get rich buying houses, right? Houses will never go down. It's the safe asset. This time around, it feels deeply cynical, right? It feels like, okay, you know, if the dollar is going to collapse, which we're told is, you know, certain in one framework or another, then the right thing to do is to lock yourself into a levered contract uh, in the form of housing that will not lose value in the context of a rapidly depreciating currency, right? I would kind of argue that's true for everything, right? It feels deeply, deeply anarchic and cynical in terms of its construction. And, you know, Bill Huang and, and Archigos strikes me as almost the perfect example of that, right? Where it's, let's go 10x levered because they won't let the system fail, right? Um, again, I don't know Bill, you know, Bill Huang personally. I don't know his rationale for doing that, but it's the only one that I could reasonably conclude, right? That effectively you're saying um, this can't go down because of X, Y, Z narrative. It's like the the Bear Stearns uh, hedge funds or any number of structures that were predicated on the idea of certain things happening in the housing market in 2006. But this time it feels like the cynicism has been fully in, embraced as part of the investment process. I think it's all how you're incented um, in what seat you're in. This housing, not bubble, let's not call it a bubble, let's just call it, you know, euphoria, is government Fed driven, in my mind, not Wall Street driven. Wall Street drove the last housing push and the last crisis because their ability to manufacture these mortgages, package them and sell them. It extended the life of what mortgage companies should not have been when, when mortgages actually started to default in 2004 and 2005. We were throwing up red flags everywhere. It was two years later before the system really blew up. The signs were there. I don't see that in this particular housing market signs here yet. And I could draw, we could go on and on about why that is. But I go back to what is the repercussions other than losing your job at Credit Suisse or Nomura, wherever you might be and what you have done. Okay, you lost your job. Who pays? The shareholders pay. The shareholders. And that's the way it's been since, since, since the financial crisis. Very few people have been held individually, individually responsible and without that, you create, to your point, the moral hazard that's kind of out there for people to say, all right, I'm going to give this a shot. I mean, you had prop traders at banks that were controlling hundreds of billions of dollars you know, during the global financial crisis that were saying, all right, well, my bonus is predicated on what I can produce. I'm going to use the bank's balance sheet to do it. And they blew up. What happened? They probably made $100 million personally over two to three years. And then they got fired and they went on and they, and they lost their job. So the Fed has had your back all the way. That is a major problem in terms of how much they can only do so much. And like I said before, we're going to see companies, we're going to see banks, we're going to see things fail that are outside of the control of the Fed, but came about because of the ability to leverage. And what people believe is that the Fed always has your back because what's the repercussion? What's the downside to make a mistake other than your reputation, which to me, I hold that at the highest. So I'll always sacrifice money over reputation any day of the week. But I don't think people are built like that. And you go back to, oh, boomers and this, that, and the other. And, you know, we've, we've seen some, I got some wrinkles, I got some scars, and um, I can't see you clearly on Zoom, but you, you look good, but you probably have some too. And I, <laughs> and there's something, something to be said for that. And it will, we will revert 
things will have a reversion to the mean and that's going to be painful at some point. I just don't know when that's going to be. Yeah, I think that's, for me, that's part of the challenge is that I do think that there are consequences. Um, as you know, I think a, a chunk of what's going on is a change in the character of the holder, right? So it's moving away from the discretionary Danny Moses or Mike Green, who says, you know, I think cash is more valuable than holding this uh, security at this valuation and replaces it with vehicles like index funds, et cetera, that don't ever stop to think about that, right? Um one of the, the lines that we hear today is this issue of collateralization or over collateralization as it relates to lending. I think one of the things that's so interesting is this: everybody looks at something like Bill Huang and the blow up of a portfolio that is levered 10x. But at each stage in that process, there's actually collateral that's being posted, right? These are not under collateralized positions in margin debt securities lending you can really only lend 50% against an underlying position, but there's ways around that. And I think we see that broadly, right? So a contract for difference or a total return swap is a highly, highly levered position where you are betting on the change in the underlying, right? Similar structures played out in the mortgage cycle where it wasn't that you were looking at everything was 125% loan to value. In fact, the vast majority of mortgages, even in that cycle, were still kind of 10 to 20% down and therefore, by definition, over collateralized. That was particularly true at the first mortgage level, right? So the second mortgages were a little bit dicier, but carried personal guarantees associated with them. But in no situation were we looking at first mortgages that were, quote unquote, not over collateralized. The challenge was the collateral wasn't supposed to all move together. Right, so the prices weren't supposed to fall. Um, so you wanna say something, please interject. I was gonna say, in that case, the over collateralization, what they call the OC, we found this out when we were just doing research back with, with Steve Vinnie and Porter in 2005 and six, was made up of mortgages. It wasn't made up of cash. So normally you have a cash cushion, but all it was was more mortgages that were supporting the rest of the mortgage book. And at the end of the day, they were all 99% correlated. and it was actually very hard to tell how much leverage was in there. To your point about loan to value, the traditional mortgage or the blow up, if you want to look at it, was built by the following. A $200,000 home made with a uh, purchase made with good intention by a subprime consumer or, you know, sub FICO score consumer and trying to do the responsible thing and putting down 40 to 50%. So let's say 50%. The mortgage broker was incented by the bank, who was incented by Wall Street to keep producing as many mortgages as possible and to keep reinventing the wheel and chop up the mortgage as many ways as they could. So they call the same person. Hey, Mike, you know, your house is 200, your house is now 300,000. You're living in Orange County. And by the way, we have this great new LTV product. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. You could put down 30%. We're going to make your house worth 300,000. So all you need is 90. We're actually going to send you a check to refinance and at a lower rate. And this went on four or five times to that person. Those are the people that were preyed upon. And by the way, what would you do if someone called you with free money? So that's the flat screen TVs and all those things you were going on and people were, were doing. That was kind of the, the essence of the problem. The other problem, which masked the true underlying performance of how subprime mortgages normally perform. So subprime mortgages have been around, were around way before uh, mm -hmm. the, the blow up. Most subprime loans by nature, because they're 500, 500, start defaulting, let's say between month um, in the range of 13 to 20. 
right? Somewhere in the, you make your first year, something happens in your life. There's a reason you're subprime. You lose your job, you stop making payments. The refinance cycle, because of the products I just mentioned, was so strong that it masked that people said, this time is different. It's never different. Underwriting never changes. It's the leverage that kills the system, to your point. It's always leverage. If things weren't levered, there would never be a systemic issue in the marketplace. People would never have a problem losing more than what they have put up. But that's not what we're in. And what Bill Wang did, and I still, we will find out how in the world, there's no way that Goldman or Morgan would have allowed that leverage on their balance sheet if they had known that leverage existed elsewhere. Maybe they knew about one other broker, but how did he hide this? And why is the people not calling for Bill Wang to, I mean, he'll be under investigation, but where is he like in all this? So anyway, I'm on a, I went off on a tangent here, but it's all related. It's all related to, the, to back to the same point. And it's, it's, it's liquidity. And it's when there's this much liquidity, crazy things can happen. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, and you used actually a really important phrase there, which is, you know, the leverage is hidden, right? It's not, it's, it's not clear to people, right? And I distinctly remember this in 2006, 2007, even as the mortgage market was beginning to melt down, right? I mean, Ben Bernanke famously, you know, subprime is contained component, right? You know, I, I would argue that there was a little bit of a disservice that was done um, through the presentation of of the big short in the movie where it was, you know, OK, as interest rates go up, people aren't going to be able to make their payments. Right. That never actually happened. It wasn't the first you know, it wasn't the interest rate resets that drove the defaults. It was the first payment defaults. It was the um, ending of the refinancing cycle that you're highlighting that effectively meant the people that were massively over levered and had chosen to effectively speculate on the ability to flip a house or to refinance and take some more cash out, which could then be used to pay the servicing of that loan. You know, when that failed to materialize, we saw the defaults accelerate, right? And that pulled down the structured products because the assumptions around the waterfall characteristics, the default and the prepayment components associated with it, those all began to break down. Yes, actually, if you take a step back from that, what, you know, 9-11, tragic event, totally agree with everything the Fed and the government did back then, because if you remember, we were in a recession already coming off the heels of the dot-com bubble. That dot-com bubble actually made its way through, if you think about it all the way, because rates were so low, the Fed cut rates to zero, basically, back then, or 1%, whatever the number was. Fed started to raise rates again. That's what really caused this. And it really goes back to, again, Wall Street was packaging and selling stuff at a certain margin. When their margins started to get hit because rates were moving higher, and not to get too technical for this, but gain on sale margins, just like any product you make, cost to manufacture and cost to sell were shrinking for these mortgage providers. And so they were squeezed, they were being squeezed also. So what they had to raise prices, so to speak. So not to, I don't think it's, if you're looking at first payment default, it wasn't necessarily that, it was reset default to your point. When the 228s and the 327 arms, by nature, they reset in two years and three years. In the if the peak was 2003 and four, what was the peak of the re- resetting? It was 2005, 2006? 
that's what caused this. And when they when the bonds, like I said before, they were performing so well, or the mortgages performing so well early on that it created this false sense. I think that can be extrapolated into this market in terms of the stock market of the self fulfilling, the Metcalf saw, whatever you want to call it, the self fulfilling that the markets only go higher. Oh look, here's a proof: confidence, confidence, confidence. For what reason? You couldn't justify a home in Orange County going from two hundred thousand to six hundred thousand dollars from two thousand three to two thousand five. I mean, because over time, you know, that's not sustainable in a normalized environment. But I hear people talking about stocks now and, you know, creating the narrative of the story that somehow matches the valuation. Oh, no, they're going to spin out this. Oh, no, you know, they're getting into Bitcoin. You know, they're mining, they're doing this, they're doing that. Oh, that makes sense. I get it now. It's a story (laughs) stock. And as soon as that story ends, where do you buy it? Where do you buy an EV company that's back that has promises to have revenue in 2025? You know, where is the proof? Is it on the company? You know, is it, is it is it on the investor in terms of how long people are willing to tell a story until it's not there any longer? So you're starting to see disenchantment in the market now on the retail side and the power of the retail we've seen. It's been very evident on the positive side and on the negative side. And I think um, there's a lot to garner and learn from that. Well, and so when you when you think about that type of dynamic, I mean, we're start. I would suggest we're starting to see that more broadly right? where there is an incredible amount of debt that is being advanced on highly speculative assets. Whether you want to believe that Bitcoin is a is you know the future of finance or not, you have to accept that it's a high volatility asset. You have to look at things like um, stable coins and recognize that the ability of those to maintain par or maintain their their peg is no different than the dynamics of any number of pegged fiat currencies in history, right? And so there are premiums that should be earned for effectively selling the insurance, which is what people are doing to generate yield in these spaces. But the certainty or the ability to model that perversely, as you're describing, as people move into it, you see the yields compress, you see the spreads on mortgage products tighten, right? This dynamic that you're referring to as raising prices effectively People often interpret that as telling you, oh, the market has spoken and this is increasingly safe. There's increasingly less risk associated with it. But it's actually almost the reverse, right? I mean, what that is telling you is is that there is more and more leverage ultimately being applied to drive those spreads closer towards more traditional assets, right? And this dynamic of a pull towards realized experience is exactly what Warren Buffett is talking about when he says, you know, when the tide goes out is when we discover who's who's naked. The tide going out is just another way of saying you're not able to refinance, and therefore you're dependent on the internal cash flow generation characteristics. My sense is is that we're seeing that in spades right now, right? And and frighteningly enough, as we often see in these cycles, people have no idea how much leverage is being applied because it is incredibly opaque, right? Mortgages were presented to everyone as over collateralized. Right, RMBS was presented as over collateralized. The tranched aspects of it were presented as safe, right? And so it was a great idea to put 10 times leverage on them. Well, if you put 10 times leverage on something and it falls by 10%, you're wiped out. And therefore you have all sorts of forced selling that hits the market that starts that process in reverse. And we don't know when that's gonna happen, but it, it sounds like you see something very much along those lines. Well, for every Wall Street acronym for a product, you get two when that fails, you get two more from the government comes in. So we're going to run out of uh, someone should trademark every ABC combo in that alphabet. We're run out of those soon. But you look at Greensill 
And as innocent or not innocent as it was, the main driver at the end of the day, what blew them up was Tokyo Marine pulling their insurance. Does that, that, that sounds familiar? We CDOs and so forth that were insured by AMBAC, NBIA, AIG and so forth. And when they did that, people said, well, why would you do that? And it turns out that Greensill was mixing supply chain finance receivables with long, what turned into be long-term loans, three, four-year loans to steel companies, you know, that were literally. So when they did that and they saw what was happening and the defaults were going to start to mount. So Credit Suisse, here they are selling a, quote, money market-like fund to their high net worth individuals, whatever the yields were, two, three percent, better than what's negative in Europe, I guess, whenever that was happening. Um, and no one asked a question until it froze. And so this happens right before Archegos. And so that's $10 billion in there. I think three or four is spoken for at this point. I don't know what Credit Suisse is going to do making up the other six or seven if they have to. Certainly, they're under the microscope now by the investment world, um, their employees and everyone else. So those type things happen when, when obviously money is free, no one's watching, regulations are, are pulled back. And People, you know, give them a rope and 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 look what they can do to themselves. It's really it's really scary. So you, there's all kinds of products out there. Again, read the fine print um, and so forth. But uh, you know, we'll see. Maybe this, maybe the new regime change in Washington. We've seen a little bit more, if you want to call it, teeth from the SEC trying to protect the investor. I don't know. They're always reactive, not proactive. They don't get. They're never going to be a hero to blow companies up. Um, you know, prior to them blowing themselves up. So. We'll see. It's going to be a very interesting couple of years here for sure. Well, this is, you know, the dynamics that you're talking about from the regulatory framework were well encapsulated by Ben Bernanke in his observation, or I think maybe of Ben Greenspan, but I think it was Bernanke, that it's impossible to pre-diagnose a bubble, right? Now, you and I may disagree with that conclusion, but there are lots of examples of companies that were presented as too speculative for the retail population, right? I mean, famously, Apple's IPO, um, you couldn't participate if you were from Massachusetts because the Massachusetts regulator at the time viewed it as too speculative for the citizens of Massachusetts, a variant of a book being banned in Boston, right? So there, there is a long history of people looking at these types of restrictions and regulations and saying, hey, that seems completely absurd in hindsight. But we're very clearly seeing a broad dismissal of that. And like the 2005-2006 time period, I would suggest that these kinds of blowups, the green sills, et cetera, are indicative of a system that is much more fragile, right? It is, um, you know, the irony, of course, is what Greensill did is something that we've seen happen over and over again. Duration extension to capture a little bit more spread right? Lowering the credit quality to capture a little bit more spread and create that spread over your cost of funds that allows you to persist, right? And that you can continue to do that until an accident happens that basically forces the realization of defaults. And this is, you know, as you highlight, Tokyo Marine basically looked at it and said, hey, wait a second, this is not what we signed up to ensure. Therefore, we're going to pull it and suddenly Greensill can't refinance and the thing tumbles almost immediately. Well, that happened in July, I think, is when they pulled. And then it's six months later that it blows up. And in the middle of all that, they're out there raising money in what they call the pre-IPO round. And that was a desperate attempt to kind of fix the sinking ship. And SoftBank gave them some money. Credit Suisse gave them some more money. And people should look back. Those are the type of things that I'm talking about. When that, no one needed to look at Greensill or may not have even known. And that was so, you know, finding that Tokyo Marine story may have been difficult to really find them. But my point is that 
when you see a company going to raise money, ask the question, what are they raising money for? What's going on? And why all of a sudden is Greensill lending to U.S. affiliates of SoftBank when in certain types of loans, that, was that a quid pro quo? What was that? So that's my point about asking the question and looking, you know, the Theranos of the world. Granted, some of these companies were private, can never get public. The WeWorks of the world never made it public. What would have happened? Who knows? Maybe if WeWork had made it public, it would be a $200 billion company because people are like, wow, I get it. This story is so, so interesting. But at the time, logic tells you, if you were looking at the WeWork market cap, it was bigger than all of the building owners put together, all of the REITs of the office property companies put together. So it's almost like you say to yourself, oh, that was obvious that WeWork would, would blow up. But you know what? It was private. So who did it blow up? Mostly private equity funds and so forth and SoftBank themselves. So there wasn't systemic. But again, it's the questions that aren't asked leading up to that. So there's plenty of those that are out there. Well, and, and on that same front, right, asking the question, being aware of the questions to ask, you know, famously can cause players like Julian Robertson to blow up right before, you know, the system begins to write itself, right? Um, effectively, what you're describing is once you lose that last marginal buyer or the last marginal, the, the marginal seller emerges who is larger than the marginal buyer, then prices can begin to move in a very uncomfortable fashion the collateral begins to decline. If the equity falls, then it becomes more difficult to raise credit, right? It, you know, this creates what was a very virtuous cycle that effectively forestalls the outcomes, becomes rapidly accelerated as things move in reverse. Correct. Staircase up, elevator down. We like Correct. So an area that you have highlighted, and, and you know, we were talking a little bit about this dynamic of fundamentals separating. One of the areas that you've stepped into in the same way that I stepped into, uh, you know, arguments around Bitcoin, you've highlighted the dynamics of cannabis. And this is kind of one of these interesting things where I think you and I are aligned um, in different areas of the market in looking at it and saying, no, actually, I think crypto has a lot of potential. I think that the elements of tokenization and DeFi are going to be a meaningful re, you know, revolution. Do I think that Bitcoin is the answer? No, but that's you know, my personal analysis. You similarly are looking at the cannabis space and saying, hey, wait a second. Yes, we are clearly seeing a transition from your father's drugs, alcohol and tobacco to cannabis and psychedelics and various other components that are moving towards legalization. But that doesn't mean these are good companies, right? It may be a good market opportunity in terms of total addressable market and the growth thereof. But many of the companies you're skeptical on, maybe you can give us some color there. Yeah, I'm not skeptical to your point on the entire industry. I think that there, what really brought me to the sector was the health aspect of it, the medical benefits that veterans could get from it, that people hooked on opioids could get from it, that states were addressing that first on how they were kind of looking at, to me was really interesting. And when the first drug was approved, was approved by the FDA for epilepsy for children, um, GW Pharma, which has since sold to Jazz Pharmaceuticals for $7.2 billion, by the way, a couple months ago, that validated the medical aspect of the product for me. So that was the first thing that I kind of looked. I'm like, okay, this is something that can work. It works in the brain. It's an anti-inflammatory. That was first. The second was, um, to your point, an alternative to alcohol. Um, and other drugs. And I saw what was happening at the very beginning. So I started to kind of look at the space in, call it 2017, late 2016, early 2017. And when I looked at the landscape and you realized that it wasn't federally legal, at that point, there's only a couple states, California, Colorado, maybe one other that had approved it for 
adult use. Most of this was medical programs within each state. And these companies, I think, weren't from a corporate governance perspective, weren't built correctly. Because if you have, if you were in cannabis in 2014, 15, and 16, why were you in it? Were you in it because you couldn't get a job somewhere else? Were you in it because you were a true pioneer? And so nothing against the people. They were true pioneers. And a lot of people were there long before I was. But that comes with a lot of problems. How do you professionalize these companies? And to their to their defense, no access to, you know, traditional credit bank accounts, inability to, to do any quote normal payroll, having to deal with cash and have a Brinks truck come to your house, to your store all the time and take it away. It was truly and truly still is somewhat the wild west. So we've seen professional investors come in, and when I saw the Canadian companies kind of go public, and we knew that theirs were extremely overvalued. I mean, we we saw some of those stocks, Tilray and others, go crazy, kind of pull up. GameStop on their own back then, you realize that there's so many nuances, not so let's separate the sector fundamentals from the technicals here. The fact that the U.S. companies were unable to list on the U.S. exchanges, but had to list on the junior Canadian exchanges because of the federal laws in the United States versus the Canadian companies, because it was federally legal in Canada, could list on the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ. That created this huge arbitrage, a dislocation of value for very expensive Canadian companies, but that was the only way that U.S. institutional investors could express, quote, the cannabis trade, which was the wrong way because those fundamentals did not match the market caps. And conversely, if you could get comfortable either as a private lender with one of these U.S. companies that had a very good footprint or take the time to truly understand the bottom ups of this industry, you could make a lot of money. Now, let's fast forward a little bit a couple of years ago. The these companies in the U.S. were kept being forced to use their stocks to raise capital because there was no other way. And by the way, using stocks to raise capital on the pink sheets, so no real institutional investors, some large hedge fund LPs or GPs were kind of quietly getting in the space. People wanted to get their fingers in it. Constellation Brands takes an investment in the Canadian company in the space. They outgrew their, their footprint and they quickly created too much balance sheet obligations liabilities and blew up. So that was like, let's say there was 10 multi-state operators in the United States, three or four blew themselves up that left five or six. There's like 10 back again, but that have now been able to expand and grow. So now with a new regime in place with the Biden administration and the Senate controlled by the, or 50-50, I should say, um, but controlled by the Democrats, there's a real move here. And the next move here is some type of banking bill. Ironically, no one in the capitalist side of the cannabis business wants to see federal legalization. They want to see state protection rights and access to banking. Because if you were to strip, if you were to legalize cannabis federally right now, from a business perspective, that's great for the industry. That's great for a lot of people. That's not great for the stocks, in my opinion. So there's so many interesting parts. And so to answer your question in a nutshell, it was a lot of B and C and D players. Um, You have a lot of A and B players now stepping in. You're going to see the drug companies, like I just mentioned before, coming in, the big alcohol companies and consumer packaged good companies coming in. You're going to see a ton of M&A. You're starting to see it now. You're going to continue to see that. And so I think there's going to be a lot of winners. I still think there will be losers, but we're now reaching, you know, we're in the second inning now. If we were in the first inning, you were only in the second inning of this trade. So back to your point, though, on the original, the other exciting part of it is the job benefits from it, the tax benefits from it. If they can figure this out, what other industry is growing like this? Crypto... I wouldn't call it industry, I would call it a sector. I mean, from a job growth perspective, I think it's hard to um, tag that right now, at least, you know, from a Bitcoin miner, what is it, you know, from getting that job, applying for that job versus a, another. But 
it is interesting. And, I, and the other thing very near and dear to my heart is criminal justice reform associated with this. So this sector, you know, checks so many boxes in this. And so I spent a lot of time at Merida Capital. Um, you know, that was kind of where I, I dug my heels in there and I, I learned a ton there and they've done great. Um, that's where I have a lot of my investments still. So um, I watch it. I pay, I'm probably spending 25% of my time in the sector at this point. And it's the most exciting sector I've seen. And, you know, it's not about liking the drug or using the drug. It's really looking at it from the business standpoint and the opportunity set. Yeah, no, I, I think that's actually a really um, powerful articulation that you laid out there, right? That um, oftentimes when an industry is created in this manner, right, where it needs to, you need to bootstrap capital, you need to self-finance, et cetera, right? The skill set is radically different than that same industry at maturity, right? So, you know, you can think about it in industries that have traditionally been more innovation focused, right? There is an, an incredible amount of innovation in the past couple of years in the cannabis space in terms of delivery vehicles, whether that's through concentrates or through vaporization techniques, et cetera, or, you know, various forms of edibles, et cetera. Um, you know, when you think about that type of packaging innovations, et cetera, when you think about those types of innovations, though, those are the ones that we see from the consumer facing side the innovations that are beginning to emerge on the capital side are equally important, right? If a Constellation Brands comes in with a traditional access to financing dynamic, their cost of capital over time is likely to be significantly advantaged versus other players in the space, right? And the transition from the entrepreneurial management that figures out, okay, here's how we deal with large quantities of cash. Here's how we handle a banking system that is unwilling to accept us. Those skill sets, you know, effectively become not useful in the space, and leadership can shift quite rapidly. In the early 1990s, I remember um, discussions around the PC space, right? So it's hard for people to believe this, but if you go back to 1994, companies like Dell Computer were trading at a discount to the market. Why were they trading at a discount to the market? Well, the narrative was. You know, you never know who is going to be the leader in the next stage of, of, of a technological cycle, right? So technology stocks should be traded at a discount. We saw that change completely by 1999, right? That these companies had an, un, uh, you know, an, an unmitigated, um, uh, you know, an unrestricted path forward effectively that they were going to lock into this stuff. We saw a lot of companies fail under that construct. And so that's kind of what you're arguing is happening here, that like the internet, there's an incredible amount of growth potential. There is a very large industry that it is growing into. It fulfills a very real need in society, but many of the companies themselves are probably not good investments. Well, I'll push back on that for a second. Okay. Think about this. These are companies that are now doing some of these billion dollars in revenue or more, 300, 400 million EBITDA numbers with very impossible tax codes with very high cost of financing, as you just mentioned. Picture these companies in an efficient market. Think about the fact that no institutional, institutional investor can own these for the most part. These are unownable by Fidelity, not even because they're cannabis stocks, because they don't trade on the exchanges. So just imagine what these companies have accomplished. And so I think there are going to be huge winners in the space. I think there'll be the next generation CPG companies, which are out there, I think some of these cannabis companies will be the ones actually reversing, reverse acquiring other brands and other sectors potentially. And I think if you think about how alcohol is set up in a state by state basis on 
distribution channels, so to speak. And that's, I think, where cannabis is headed on a state basis. So make no mistake, this is a sector that will have winners. Yes, I think we've seen the bulk of the losers already kind of occur. If you don't get access to capital now, you're never getting access to capital. Now, access to capital in cannabis still means you're paying at best 12, 13, 14%. And that's the best you're going to see. You'll see eight or nine on paper, but at the time that you're paying the origination fee and so forth, it's 12 or 13. Imagine on the equity financing side, if you're able to actually list on the exchanges, what that might look like. So these companies have been able to piecemeal themselves to where they are today, given those restrictions. The internet stocks, is they had access to whatever they wanted at the time. May not have been good companies, may not have been business plans, but they had access. Every Wall Street firm wanted to underwrite those, as you know. So I think Wall Street is chomping at the bit. The exchanges are chomping at the bit. to They want to list these companies. And there are a few, quote, non-plant touching cannabis companies that trade on the exchanges now. And they trade at massive premiums because it's the only way that the U.S. investors can express their trade. So there's a scarcity play here in play. I, I think we're still early. And so, you know, just imagine the the access changing for these companies to capital. It'll, it'll You don't have to be a genius or a model builder to plug in the present value discount rate change to what these companies could be worth. So, well, and, and I think that's, you know, again, it goes back to some of the hidden leverage components that don't necessarily exist here, right? So if I think about the internet or the dot-com cycle, there was the cost of financing associated with an IPO or a venture capital, which was, you know, theoretically free, right? You're raising equity and you don't have to pay a dividend and therefore you could argue that your cost of capital is quite low, but it was actually fairly high. And the margins associated with Frank Quattrone's you know, IPO business, et cetera, were incredibly high, right? So there was a huge incentive for Wall Street to push this stuff out. Same thing exists, as you're pointing out, in cannabis, although a lot of the companies have now gone public. Many of the players are out there. And if you can't raise capital today, or if you haven't already raised capital, you're probably too late to the game, right? Um, but the other side of that equation that happened with the dot-com cycle is that the industry itself was effectively all on chain. So Cisco would extend credit to you in the form of product financing to allow you to buy your servers, right? Regardless of your underlying credit, because it was perceived as everybody was good credit and Cisco would get huge benefits associated with their revenue growth if they were generous on their credit terms, right? So it just became totally normal to extend credit in a way that people had not fully thought of and the system became very levered. Is that happening in the cannabis space or is it less so, right? Is there less leverage in that? Way less leverage. There's no Lucent and Nortels, as you bring up, um, to keep revenues going. What they've been forced to do, these companies, is sell leasebacks of their facilities in the greenhouses. That's been their number one provider of capital in the space for the most part on an ongoing basis is to get into a state, announce that you're building a grow in a facility. Once you get it built, you want your capital back for other marketing reasons. You then lease that building back at, you know, who knows what you're paying, 15, 18%. So the inability to even use those assets for leverage because the, it's not federally legal. There's no bankruptcy court. And because there's no bankruptcy court, there's you're talking about 95% of people that give traditional loans won't do it because there's no recourse. So to your point, so a lot of the, if there's leverage in the system, it's because some of these companies, at least years ago, some of the founders were providing personal guarantees that you know, ended up, they lost their cars and their homes because of it, because there was no other access. They were forced to pledge their other assets. So in that sense, some individuals became levered that were associated with the companies, but it is not a systemic issue uh, at all. And so 
it's underlevered, undercapitalized. Um, and I, like I said, I think, believe me, there's people I know out there that are waiting and talk about M&A within the banking space and all the investment kind of boutiques, there'll be M&A of people that are involved in cannabis so that these larger companies can get their hooks in, um, finance companies can get their hooks in and get those introductions. Yeah, I agree. And I think the extension of capital under those sort of conditions, right? A constellation making an investment, et cetera, it's not dissimilar to what we're seeing with China and the Belt and Road Initiative, right? You know, it, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of capital effectively giving me first claim on um, if things go wrong, if I'm constellation, you know, that's kind of a dream come true because then I can deploy incremental capital with much greater control features. I can pick up assets. I mean, that to me is going to be kind of where this really begins to mature into an opportunity similar to um, in the in the dot-com space. You saw a company, Cogent Communications, go out and acquire a lot of the ISPs that blew up, you know, with the generous financing terms that were coming from uh, Cisco and Lucent and Telecom and, and uh, Nortel, et cetera, when those blew up, it created conditions that you could go up, go out and buy up the assets very, very cheaply, right? Um, and there were successful equities that came out of it, but that kind of clearing of the, the you know, nuclear winter, has that happened yet in cannabis, even though we've seen, we've seen a lot of price volatility on the stocks, but it doesn't feel like we've had that clearing event yet. You've had blowups where at, there's been yard sales, so to speak, on some of the MedMen assets and, you know, some of the, some of these companies that were, they were over levered. It was more about not understanding the balance sheet and what they were doing at the time. But you do see those one-offs. You see people that have a license that they're unable to keep or they don't have capital that they'll sell a license in a state. But most of these things you're seeing are very, very small. A lot of those cleanups have occurred already or are in the process of occurring. I think you will see, you are seeing actually some M&A, there's a $200 million deal a couple months ago, there's a $250 million deal between two public companies. So you are seeing a cleanup there. And two years ago, when they tried to do the cleanup the first time, the FTC or the DOJ actually, which was still under the old you know, um, government, blocked the deals. And so if HSR gets invoked, I think at the, what, $95 million anytime there's an M&A deal, they haven't even, there's been no type of review here on these last few deals. So that also is another positive development in the space. So to your point, I think you'll continue to see kind of these, call it three, $400 million type transactions keep occurring and these roll-ups keep occurring of companies, the parent company that can operate much more efficiently, that has a better blueprint for the state-by-state -state basis and build out. I mean, state of Massachusetts and state of Colorado, it's like being in two different countries in cannabis. Your business plan is completely different. And then in Florida, it's completely different. You know, so Oklahoma has something like 3,000 dispensaries. If I told you that, you'd be like, what are you talking about? They do. It's in the thousands, I think, of dispensaries in Oklahoma. That's a very fragmented kind of market. Like, I don't know how you make, you know, who's making money there. But the point is that you got to be nimble and, and you have to be smart. And that's what has happened. So, yes, there's always cleanups going on and blow ups and stuff like that. But um, I think you made the point before, which I agree with. If you can't get capital now in the cannabis space, you have the wrong business plan. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, 
which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Another business that you have some involvement with, we discussed the dynamics of PharmaPak and um, the business that has been built there around Amazon third-party sales. This is kind of an area that, that at least to me feels underexplored. Like, how do you think about the dynamics of Amazon and the platform that it's created and, and the opportunities that that either creates or the characteristics that you think that it might lead to significant change? Yeah, I'll start with kind of the news I was reading today and working my way back. I think we all knew 20 years ago that JCPenney and Sears would end up going bankrupt at the expense of Amazon, right? Or if you want to correlate those two. And now I see that they're buying Maester's Mall malls that have the JCPenney and the Sears in them and using them as a distribution facility. So talk about full circle where we were going and where we are now on the retail cleanup, so to speak. But yeah, the PharmaPax company is really interesting. I met them a couple of years ago. Ironically, I was in their debt lender's office doing a deal in cannabis when I met PharmaPax, which has nothing to do with cannabis because um, they had provided a loan to them. And I said, what is this thing? I really wasn't that familiar with 3P marketplaces or third person marketplaces that are out there. And effectively, it's a it's a platform that plugs into every marketplace, not just Amazon, Walmart, Amazon, Facebook, Instagram, Google now has a marketplace, Target has a marketplace. So it's really for products to sell in certain categories. So you think about a Lysol, or you think about Q-tips or shampoos, so the basic brands. And then PharmaPax has an entire division dedicated to emerging brands, kind of startup brands that are coming from Australia or in Europe that have, have some type of ESG component to them, like a Feek, which is a really cool, you know, soap brand that is waterless shampoo. So really cool stuff. And so they have this bifurcated business of traditional CPG products and emerging. Anyway, the company, I got to watch these guys evolve into a a massive company, the largest third party seller on Amazon. And I kind of advised them on the capital market side that they were doing. And to watch what's happening now, Walmart making huge inroads in the space and the CPG company, the Johnson and Johnson's of the world and the record Ben Kaiser they need an outlet. They need a pharma packs in there. One, to diversify away from traditional Amazon business with Amazon has their 1P business where they actually buy the product and sell it themselves into this business. And pharma packs has found themselves, I think, now to be the largest third-party seller on Amazon in North America. And yes, they pay Amazon a commission, just like any seller would onto their platform, but it's a lot more than that. You know, They have data on 65, 70 million orders. It's hugely valuable to the CPG companies, whoever wants to monetize that, right? Like I said, there's investments they have in some of these emerging brands, but watching PharmaPaks, they are the eyes and ears. They get to see everything going on in the marketplace. So to take your, to take this conversation into kind of the macro, from an inflationary perspective, from a product shortage perspective, from a supply chain problem that everyone's kind of reading about, and I'm not talking about the Suez Canal, I'm talking about even before that, what COVID really created was COVID moved the online market ahead five years. If it was 10 to 15% of commerce, of overall business is now 25 to 30 and growing. That accelerated, obviously, and brought forward five years worth of online demand. What that did was, and the inability to access certain plants in China and around the world because of COVID, it created a supply chain issue and a shortage of products, which we're still dealing with today. When I say we, the entire world is dealing with today. And you think about a a bottle of shampoo 
where the ingredients for the shampoo are made in one country, the bottle is made in another country, and the cap is made in a third country, and they're all shipped to one location to contract manufacture together. One of those three, if that's not working, you're screwed, right? And so prices are going up because demand for product is exceeding supply right now. So how transitory is that from an inflationary perspective? Kimberly Clark's out raising prices on toilet paper and paper towels. Those to me are essentials that are out there. This is not going to abate anytime soon. And so your choice becomes, does the margin hit the companies themselves or does the margin hit the consumer? And on top of all of this, shipping rates are obviously are going up around the world. We've seen that. That's part of this whole supply chain issue. And shipping packages in the United States have gone up because gas went up a lot. There's surcharges going on because there's so much demand. So watching this thing pull forward, all the demand that happened from COVID and sitting there with foreign packs and watching this incredible, can be you know incredibly exciting or upsetting or going to look at it, whichever side of the equation that you're on here to watch it grow is really something. And so Amazon obviously is in, in the catbird seat. Walmart's again, I think growing on them rather quickly. And it's been really interesting to watch this occur during COVID and, and, and during this growth. So farm packs is positioned perfectly, you know, in my opinion, and it's been great to be on, you know, on board, so to speak with those guys. Well, this is one of the things that I talk about, or I, I try to talk about fairly often, right? When you have effectively two separate supply chains and the early COVID supply chain disruptions where we couldn't get toilet paper, for example, right? In just the simplest form, there was a commercial toilet paper distribution chain and manufacturing chain and spec, and there was a residential one, right? And so the commercial toilet paper is those big paper rolls with very thin paper that nobody really wants to use, but you know, in a pinch, you're gonna do it, right? And that has an entirely different supply chain. And effectively what we saw was the collapse of that supply chain and all the lines that were set up to support it, et cetera, when restaurants shut down and schools shut down. You know, so I, I don't know the exact numbers, but let's say 50% of the opportunities to use the bathroom changed and they concentrated around the residential side. So the residential side had a sudden surge in demand, right? The ability to match up those two supply chains and flip from one to the other created the initial shortages of toilet paper, which were then exacerbated by, of course, people seeing the shortages developing and rushing out and increasing their demand on a short-term basis. We all remember walking into our garages at one point or another in the past year and a half and discovering that we had accumulated, you know, 50 bags worth of toilet paper because we it just- It was you then, huh? You were the one? Were I was the one, the one yeah. <laughs> um, I actually, I, I tried to be fairly meticulous um, yeah. in avoiding it, but there were yeah. a couple of times where I will admit that I was a panic buyer as well. Yeah. Um, that is likely to reverse itself, right? And so we will see those chains renormalize, but they're going to renormalize in almost the opposite direction, right? So the institutional space as it comes back on is going to, to experience those dynamics. And we'll suddenly find school principals rushing to Target to buy residential toilet paper to fill the, you know, to put the rolls in the in this in, in the uh, school's bathrooms, right? Um, so we're going to see these supply disruptions play out over and over again. PharmaPak and the dynamics of the distribution through the Amazon supply chain are just another example of that, right? It's a parallel supply chain that's emerging that is stuff that you're not going to go to your CVS, et cetera, for but your CVS has to stock it as well, right? So they're, they're not gonna put themselves into stock out situations. So we've got a lot of disruption tied around these changes of the supply chain. Again, I'm not the person for this interview on China and all the issues going on there politically and business-wise. But if you think about the excuse now to build a factory in the US versus China or 
companies may be forced to do that. That's great for the U.S. economy. That's inflationary for the U.S. economy. And inflation is not always bad when we're talking about two and a half percent, three percent. God forbid we have any wage inflation or you know sustained growth. But I think that one of the results or byproducts of this will be jobs coming back to the U.S., which is great. And maybe stock market people don't want to see it, but I think that's great for the economy. And I think that is another byproduct of what's going to happen here for sure. Yeah, I mean, we're already seeing that, right? The the jobs open but unfilled. Um, and jobs hard to fill categories of the the small business uh, and the jolt surveys are already off the charts, right? So even with high levels of unemployment, we're seeing this mismatch. And that, that I think more than anything else is what it feels like coming out of coronavirus is this, and, and to your point, the China trade dynamics is what's creating this disruption, right? Don't worry, Mike, it's all transitory. It's all gonna pass. There's no, Fed's got your back. They got control of this thing. It's all good. I think it's more transitory than people think, but I, I I agree with you that we have a lot of disruption ahead of us on a continuous basis. And the weird part is going to be, we now get to discover just how concentrated these industries might have become, right? If Kimberly Clark is able to maintain pricing power, that starts to tell you something else is happening in the, the markets, right? Well, what else is happening? So if Amazon was the deflationary story for the last 15 or 20 years. And there's a vote in Alabama about unionizing today, Amazon employees in, in Alabama and around the country, so to speak, the, the laws are gonna be different, obviously, in a state-by-state -state basis, but wage inf true inflation is measured by wage inflation, um, right? I think that's the number one. If you, have, if you have higher wages, you have higher spending by nature. So I'm not so sure that this, this lab experiment that's been going on now for 14, 15 years, how it's gonna end up, but, uh, there's a lot of rats in the in the maze here, so we'll we'll have to see. I think that's definitely true. So 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 this brings us then into how the Fed should respond. And and again, you know, I was fortunate enough to listen to you speak um, about two weeks ago, and you said something that I thought was actually pretty powerful. That you know, if you look back on kind of the period of 2001, or you look back on elements of the global financial crisis, you kind of have to give props to the Fed for doing the best that it could. And doing some, making some innovative choices that made things less severe than they might otherwise have been. But you're a little bit less forgiving on what's going on today. Can you share some of your thoughts there? Yeah, like I said, I think when when TALF and TARP were done, um, you know, in hindsight, I didn't agree. I don't agree with the government intervening really in any type of matter with that. However, they were so late to the game to understand the AIGs and the Lehmans and the effect that it had on the global markets literally seizing up overnight, that um, they overreacted to a degree. Although I will say the TAL program ended up working great in the TAR program and so forth, and it evolved over time and it worked and then it was done. And what really bothers me now is that just to take the extreme of what I believe the most extreme thing that they did during the COVID crisis was to start buying high yield bonds of companies that were triple B rated, that they gave money to BlackRock to go buy ETFs in HYG and all this stuff. Like to me, you talk about moral hazard companies that balance sheets were already suffering pre-COVID shouldn't have probably been in business anyway. And what do you do? You take taxpayer money and you effectively put it into these companies. And, and so to the extremes of both, but what's really bothering me right now is the inability to even wean off of $120 billion a month in purchases, right? 80 billion in treasuries and 40 billion in mortgage-backed securities. What are we so afraid of? How dangerous is it right now that you can't even start to even indicate that you're going to stop that? That's how 
to your point you made before, Mike, about how fragile things feel and how they are, that to me is mind numbing. Um, you look at our debt approaching 30 trillion and we're trying to put together infrastructure bill that needs funding and you're gonna have to have higher taxes. Somewhere along the line, we're gonna pay the piper for all this stuff we're doing. And I think some of the stuff we're doing was not and is not necessary. And it goes back to the stock market being your positive feedback loop and, and the indicator to Bernanke at the time that his precious, we used to joke in the office, it's his precious is the stock market. And he'd watch it and that was his indicator. And if the stock market goes down on a Friday, drastically, he would come out on a Monday with some new program. That was back then. This time, I think that Powell um, is watching, obviously, the stock market because they see that as a form of, of they, you know, they see it as a positive reinforcement loop that people are in the markets and they'll, they'll have capital gains and they'll reinvest that money and so forth. So I just think that what they're doing right now is um, a little bit too much. And I don't, you know, there's a, so many programs going on right now um, between, forget about stimmy checks and that stuff. That's fine. But come on. I mean, the Fed, it's time to pull back a little bit. And to say that, to, to basically indicate now that there's no signs of anything, we'll let inflation run higher than it would have normally, we'll let unemployment rate go lower than it would have normally. You're changing the rules on the fly to justify these programs. And I think it's too much at this point. I think at some point it's, they, they might lose control. So when you think about this dynamic, you know, you, you referred to Ben Bernanke and the stock market as his precious, right? Um, and we've seen that, I would argue, even more with Powell and obviously Trump under his administration made it a centerpiece of, of any articulation of success. What happens if you know, the stock, like the reason for that obviously is the expectations channel, the idea of the expectations channel and that the quote unquote smartest guys in the room are digesting the information coming from the central banks and saying, it means X for the future of the economy, right? That's embedded in stock market prices. You've been through an experience with mortgages where you saw it wasn't actually information. It was the financing vehicles. It was the tools and rules that were in place for how things were, were being done, the incentive structures. How do you think this plays out in an environment in which people suddenly discover that maybe the stock market isn't as much built around the expectations channel today as it is around the technicals, similar to what happened in the mortgage market in 2005, 2006? What what would be the implications of that for kind of all of us? How do you how do you think about that? Right. So the narrative of the stock market is the economy and vice versa. So better for worse at this point, I think the majority, a lot of people that are going to be in the market are in the market. I don't think there's a lot of new entrants coming to the market. I think we got everyone swept in and ready to go. And so there's a negative wealth effect to your point about what happens if the stock market goes down and people have these losses and they're like, what, I, I, what happened? Blame the short sellers. Let's blame somebody else other than, you know, than themselves for it. So the Fed can't cut rates anymore, obviously, on that front. They could come up with some other programs, I guess, that they could. But to your point, who is the next buyer? Who is the buyer of last resort here? The question is, I don't know. And this is what is so upsetting is that we haven't had a normal cycle here now in, in many, many years. And so companies go bankrupt. That's what they do. Companies have bad business plans. That's what they do. And companies have been able to stay afloat um, for non-fundamental reasons, which will that's listen. If that if that keeps a thousand people employed at a company that shouldn't have bothered with employed, then it had a positive impact. Okay, I'm not going to argue that that's not a positive tending for the economy. But what it does is it just prolongs what is the inevitable. And by doing that, you potentially also bring in a lot more people that are some, somewhat duped into that business model that never should have succeeded. So 
We all went to business school. A lot of people went to business school. You study case reviews. You, you know how to run a business. You know, and I feel like the rules just don't exist. I feel like you're going in on the ten yard line, and all of a sudden you're you're on your own ten instead of the you know opponent's ten, and they just keep changing it all the time. And it really, it's really the moral hazard component of risk reward. And listen, I'm a capitalist. I'm a former Wall Street guy, but I'm a anti Wall Street Wall Street guy because I saw the abuses firsthand. I see the misaligned incentives that can occur because of how things are structured and set up now. And that will never change, but it's never been as pervasive, I think, as it is now. And your question about who's participating the most on the wealth, I mean, the wealth effects here, it's in the the top five to 10%, the economy is the one that's getting the majority of the benefit here. Now, I will say that the last few economic stimulus bills that have come in are truly helping move up the poverty line a little bit and bringing up people, which is great. And maybe some rich people don't like to see that, but I think that's a positive for everyone in the long run. But I'll go back to what I said before to your Fed question. We're going to have to pay for this at some point. This is, if you had told people 10 years ago that our debt would be near these levels relative GDP and whether you can make the excuse, oh, but five or six trillion of that is because of COVID. Okay. And maybe the GDP is a little bit suppressed because of what has happened to COVID. Okay. We're still in deep trouble here in terms of the long-term ramifications of this. And so- I think that over the longer term, if people are being honest with themselves, any return to normalcy, it's higher taxes. It's, it's, it's higher taxes, which have an effect on the stock market themselves. And so those technicals are not being looked at right now. And if you just took the simple Ralph Paul math, which is hard to disagree with, and we had him on our podcast a couple of weeks ago, is it's just a fraction. It's how much is being printed relative to the size of the stock market. And the stock market maybe on a market cap aggregate perspective, doesn't look that expensive relative to the amount of money that's being printed. So it's how do you do fundamental analysis in this market? And so it's scary because every time we've seen the Fed try to pull back, even indicate anything, we've seen rates move higher, which literally widen credit spreads, which send stocks lower. And then there's a, you know, there's a backtracking of it. No, no, we we're kidding. We were kidding on that. We didn't mean that. So like I said, a lot of money to be made, I think, on both sides of the equation over the next couple of years here on this experiment. Well, why don't we wrap up on that then? Because I, I, I tend to agree. I think that um, we're seeing a lot of indications that a significant restructuring is coming our way, right? We see this ranging from uh, the level of the U.S. trade deficit exploding to record levels, you know, um, on the heels of restricted production here. And as you highlight, it's likely that we're going to start to see some of that production coming back, but that in turn creates its own incentives and demands, et cetera, right? If we try to start producing things here, we need to find workers for those jobs and, and the workers are very hard to find. Um, if I wanted to, um, if, I, if I wanted to follow kind of your attack on this narrative on and how it's going to develop, is the best thing for viewers to do to check out the podcast? Are there other avenues or other mechanisms for people to continue to hear how Danny Moses is seeing this play out going forward. Listen, I'm, I'm certainly wrong a lot. So uh, don't follow don't follow me into the abyss. Um, no, but certainly listening to the podcast and I think reading and not being spoon fed information in general where you're getting it. Like I've always told people, and I don't mean to be a broken record here, but in terms of um, if you want to invest in a company, there's information available for you. I mean, you can read the documents, read the 10 Qs and Ks and Try to get a hold of management if you can. I've always joked. I said, if you can get the CEO on the line of a company, you probably shouldn't buy that stock. If you're a guy, a person for the street, that's a check mark. It's scary there. But um, 
No, I mean, listen, read and, and do your own work and so forth. Um, and like I said before, um, look at everything um, skeptically. What's the best way for people to kind of keep apprised of, of how Danny Moses is thinking about the world? Well, I'm on Twitter here and there, so I tweet, but not all that often. I certainly do on the tape podcast, which is weekly. So definitely tune into that. Um, you know, I, I, I'm very inquisitive and I think people asking further questions and, and on their own and not taking anything at face value is very beneficial. Uh, asking the harder questions, um, reading analyst reports and trying to figure out what is their incentive for writing it. And without going into certain stocks in particular, I think we know where there's banking fees, there's positive research reports. And as Vincent Daniel once said, on the sell side, if you're writing negative research reports and you're wrong, you're going to get fired. If you're positive research reports and you're wrong, you'll still have a job. And so I think we've also seen the marrying, the remarrying of investment banking and research again. If we think back, you mentioned Quattrone in the Blodgett era back then, where we went through a whole regulation period of separating um, banking and research. I don't think it's ever been more married in our, my entire career. I, I think it's the, the most um, obvious thing to see right now that I've seen. So again, you know, some of these ETFs that are out there, I'm not gonna name names that are kind of championing themes and but maybe they're misstructured. Maybe you just don't even know what you're buying. And and so watch me on Twitter. I make comments here and there. I'm as I'm wrong as much as I'm right. Um, but philosophically, I think behavioral finance will always be what I use the most. And try to recognize for yourself when you're in when you're on the same boat with everybody else, get off the boat, long or short side. That'd be my advice. Well, I, I I I actually wanted to emphasize something that you said, um, you know, somewhat offline, which is this idea of skepticism, right? And there's a huge difference between skepticism and negativity, right? There is no re like you you highlighted this within the cannabis space. There is no need to be reflexively negative. Um, and you know, Bernard Baruch has the very famous expression: "The bearish case always sounds more intelligent," right? Uh, <laughs> It's, it's very easy to be seduced by the, oh, well, that's never happened before, therefore it can't happen now, right? Or, and, and I often find that that tends to be um, a failure to understand the correct analogy, right? Lots of things have happened before that people didn't really understand what was going on. But the advice that you're giving is somewhat timeless, which is do your own research. Be thoughtful about what is being sold to you. Be thoughtful about who's the product. Why are they communicating this to you? And very few people, I think, have done a better job uh, of that. Obviously, you know, the big short being able to stand up and do your own research and understand what the collateral and the leverage embedded in the system was is indicative of that. I'm a huge fan of On the Tape. I'm looking forward to continuing to listen to it. And Danny, I'd love to make sure that uh, we get you back on in the next couple of months to get an update on things like PharmaPak, the cannabis developments, et cetera, and uh, to hear how things are going on your podcast. I appreciate that. And we'd love to have you on so I can grill you for an hour and 20 minutes on, on our podcast. So we got to schedule that for another time for sure. Let's make it a date. I look forward to it. All Danny, right. thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.